This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Their focus becomes on losing weight for appearance, but it's really about the idea of changing what you do with your lifestyle to improve your metabolic health. The side effect of doing that will be weight loss. But when people focus purely on that, they can sometimes lose their way. It really comes down to to education and letting them know that it's not a lack of willpower. It is literally a hormonal or dysregulated thing that's going on in their body. People see intermittent fasting as reducing calories. It's actually not at all. You could consume the same amount of calories in that eating window But what you're doing by fasting is that you're putting the body in a state of stress short term, which can be healthy, and then reduce inflammation that's occurring. Even short term, the Mediterranean diet has been associated with, you know, reduced total mortality, coronary heart disease, lower risk of cardiovascular and cardiometabolic profiles, lower risk of developing type 2 diabetes, low risk of stroke and heart attack. This is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, the podcast that's open-minded enough to take in all sides of a clinical story. You'll hear from researchers, doctors, naturopaths, nutritionists and patients. We look at common clinical presentations through a different lens. It's open, frank and sometimes controversial. Nothing is off limits. Will it change the way you treat? We'll leave that up to you. In Season 2 of Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, we look at cardiometabolic health. We talk to experts in the field who will take you into their clinics and share their experience. I'm Tony Chambers, and this is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds. In this episode of Between Clinical Minds, we continue the conversation on insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes, focusing on treatment considerations with dietitian Robbie Clark, GP Dr. Lucy Burns, and naturopaths Dr. Brad McEwen and Karen Squires. So we really have to firstly have an understanding of the patient and what they've trialled to date. Um, look at what has worked and what hasn't worked and really focus on the things that has worked for them, but make it better. So it's really a lifestyle modification protocol. Functional dietitian, Robbie Clark. And it's interesting. A lot of people might be like, oh, you're a dietitian. You have to solely focus on diet. Absolutely not. It is a functional approach and, you know, we have to look at their sleep behaviours because we know that that is going to interfere with their circadian rhythms, which in turn is going to cause all types of metabolic issues if they don't have a good sleep hygiene. So stress management is the first and foremost. I'm looking at their lifestyle, their work, their relationships, their financial statuses, all of those things that are going to drive the emotional and psychological inflammation then the physical inflammation as well. You know, people will come to me and they're on a significantly reduced caloric diet, which they've been told by another practitioner saying that this is what you have to do, causing more metabolic damage and stress. So it's pieces and, and modifying that. 
So you have to have an effective lifestyle modification program in place. And then, of course, diet and exercise play a very, very important role in this as well. So in terms of treatment, I will use a mix of dietary approaches because I need it to work for my clients. I can't say this is evidence-based, this is clinically speaking what you should be doing because it may not fit in with their lifestyle. I use a combination of factors like a low glycemic index um, approach. I might use a more plant-based diet approach. I might use ketogenic in extreme cases. Alternatively, I might just use an intermittent fasting protocol as well. I will never do them all together. I will certainly see what the sweet spot is and see how my client respond based on the protocol implemented at the time. Just on intermittent fasting, how beneficial do you find that for the people who are able to sustain it? Very, very, very good. Um, I find that I get some great responsiveness to um, specifically some biological markers that you can look at in terms of inflammation. So you can see if it's working or not through retesting at a certain point in time. So I might put people on a protocol for 12 weeks, three months, and then retest and then see what improvements have occurred based on maybe the dietary protocol. And then we can make some modifications if we need to. So what I find more sustainable in the intermittent fasting is that 16-8 protocol. And what's really important to understand here is that people see intermittent fasting as reducing calories. It's actually not at all. You could consume the same amount of calories in that eating window, but what you're doing by fasting is that you're putting the body in a state of stress short term, which can be healthy, and then reduce inflammation that's occurring. However, I will pick and choose the the clientele that I put this on because there are obviously people that do not or should not be on this particular diet, such as people with a history of eating disorders and women who are either planning to become pregnant um, or those who are pregnant and or breastfeeding. So they are populations that should definitely not go on this protocol. And like I mentioned, if there's a huge state of stress that these clients have experienced, I may not do that for them either. Dr. Lucy Burns, a general practitioner turned low-carb real food advocate, is helping thousands of people turn their diet and their health outcomes around. I love intermittent fasting, but I often caution people because I think sometimes people start too early. So imagine, again, if your woodshed, and this is where the knowing what your insulin levels are like can be helpful, but if once if your woodshed is still shut and you start intermittent fasting, you're going to get hungry and it's going to be really hard. And intermittent fasting should be easy. It should be something where you just cruise around and you're really just not hungry. You're not depriving yourself. You know, you're not starving and hanging out to your next meal. You just cruise around. And I totally love it because it's so simple. I don't have to worry about breakfast. I can just get up. I can have, you know, something to drink. It might be water or black tea, black coffee. And then I go to work and it's simple. I'm not starving. Whereas when I used to eat breakfast and admittedly this was processed food, you know, cereal, like most people, I'd be starving again by 9.30. 
And now I know why, but I didn't at the time. So it is, again, it's also chicken and egg because once you open your woodshed a little bit and you add fasting in, it will open it even more. So it's definitely great. And how long do you generally have people on a low-carb diet before you start them on the intermittent fasting? It's very variable. And again, often depending on how insulin resistant they are, but it can, I mean, it can be any time between sort of two or three weeks, right up to six, eight or nine weeks. And I think for a lot of people, if they've been very insulin resistant, their fear of being hunger, hungry is quite real because they basically would spend time in their life without fuel and get that whole shaking, get irritable, get hangry. They don't want that to happen. So they're fearful. So just gently encouraging them to sort of just eke it out by half an hour or an hour is another great way for someone who's a bit nervous about it. Dr. Burns has turned around insulin resistance and pre-diabetes for herself and believes weight should not be the focus. It's really about the idea of changing what you do with your lifestyle to improve your metabolic health. The side effect of doing that will be weight loss, but when people focus purely on that, they can sometimes lose their weight. So we talk a bit about, right, well, you know, you've got this pancreas, it's working hard, it's bashing out lots of insulin. It one day will run out of steam and that's when type 2 diabetes comes. We want to look after the pancreas. How do we do that? We can give it a rest by reducing the amount of carbs in our diet. So I'll always take a dietary history. And talking to people about sugar, it's really interesting because people still have a concept in their mind that sugar is what you put in your tea. And they go, no, I don't eat any sugar. And it's Really interesting because you then have to kind of dive that just that little bit under the surface and people don't realise that, you know, there is sugar in, well, sadly, just about every processed food these days, even things that you don't think it is like sauce and, um, you know, barbecue sauce and pasta sauce and orange juice and all, you know, bread and everything. Mm, Yeah. So then talking to them about what a carbohydrate is and how carbohydrate you know, is glucose, chains of glucose, and it'll either be a savoury carbohydrate, chains of glucose, or a sweet carbohydrate, which will be chains of glucose and fructose. Fructose is its own separate problem, also contributing to metabolic disorder and particularly fatty liver. So then we talk to them about all the things that they can do in their lifestyle to improve their metabolic hormonal profile. And I mean, you touched on it, but we, you know, I'll talk and, and you can't do all this in one consult. So I don't want anyone to think that, you know, wow, we cover all this in a consult because that would be crazy. But we do. I talk a lot about their nutrition. Talk about strength training as a mechanism for reducing insulin resistance, not exercise to lose weight because trickily and paradoxically, if they're the same word, I guess, um, for some people exercise makes them really hungry. So then they end up just eating and the, the, whatever sort of, things they've lost. Not that exercise isn't great. It's a wonderful, wonderful um, modality, but it's not always helpful purely for weight loss. Strength training, very, very good for metabolic health. Talk to them about their sleep because again, your sleep impacts these metabolic hormones and ghrelin in particular. When people are tired, your ghrelin goes up. Ghrelin is your hunger hormone. And so people wonder why then when they're tired, they're hungry. It's not that they're just kind of weak, willed, <laughs> they're literally hungry. So yeah, so kind of this holistic thing, including, look, honestly, including gut health. Um, there's a lot on gut health, you know, as you know, there's a multitude mm-hmm. of research and stuff coming out. 
I think, again, I'd just like to distill it down because for the majority of people, it's really just getting back to whole, you know, my, my philosophy is low-carb real food. If you're insulin resistant, if you have metabolic syndrome, low-carb real food will help you. Not everybody in the entire universe needs to eat low-carb. There are plenty of people who are metabolically flexible, who don't have high insulin, and my husband and my girls are three of those people. I'm not. And if I ate like they did, I, I, I will end up sick and, you know, my metabolic, my pre, pre-diabetes will become diabetes. So you, you don't touch sugar at all? I, I heard you say that you, you just don't eat sugar. Yeah. I, look, I would love to say that that is me 100% of the time. And it's really interesting. Again, you know, I've been low sugar, no sugar for probably four years. And certainly in my first couple of years, none, because I knew myself very well and I still do. I know the things that I find hard to regulate So again, it's really hard in this sort of, you know, the diet industry has done a lot of trauma for people. It's talked about restriction and deprivation as tools to lose weight. Never about managing your mind around those and learning to know yourself. And one of my favorite little sayings is that weight loss is, you know, it's a personal development program. It's not just a meal plan. Absolutely. A meal plan will, anyone can follow a meal plan for two weeks, but you need to know yourself well and you need to understand what your thoughts are. Um, and feelings are that drive you to eat outside of hunger. And do you find that that's a tricky part of what you do? Is that that the psychological component? I also see people where they need to really spend a a fair bit of time with managing their mind around a low-carb lifestyle because for years and years and years, there's been all stories in their head around food and what food means. And being able to do something long-term really means you have to address those stories and unpack them and be able to reframe them in a way that becomes sustainable for you and in some ways change your almost change your identity so you know I used to say that I was a chocoholic and Lucy loves lollies and I would never leave you know my life would be miserable and over if I had to stop chocolate and honestly I just don't care about chocolate anymore you know I went from a block a day can't believe I'm confessing that a block a day which, you know, it had all these implications. It was my friend when I was reading a book on the couch. It was my thing I would be watching after a terrible day at work. I'd watch, you know, some sort of, I can't even think of some rubbish television, but, you know, scoffing my chocolate. Yeah. So to just stop it required a bit of mind management. Otherwise, I just felt miserable. And what is the devil as far as you're concerned? I mean, carbohydrate, but fructose in particular? Yeah, I think um, there's two. So yeah, definitely fructose is is really problematic. And I think that the component of, you know, fructose is one half of sugar, as we've talked about. It's also, you know, used in juices and, and people think that eating, drinking juice is really help, helpful and healthy. But you're, it's not because we know that your liver has to convert that fructose into, into triglycerides. So it's a really hard process for your liver to do. And I'm often talking to people about the idea of, you know, people think I'm going to go on a juice cleanse. And in fact, your liver is just crying its eyes out when it suddenly sees a tidal wave of fructose coming its way. <laughs> it is the opposite of a cleanse. So certainly fructose is, is sneaky. But for some people, they're not, they're not again, they're not sweet driven. They're, they're, they're bread, you know, they're breadaholics. People go, I'm breadaholic. I, I don't care about chocolate. I just want my bread. And so for them, again, it's that idea of just knowing yourself well and what is it that you find hard to regulate. 
if you find hard to regulate and just having, you know, one piece of sourdough, again, one piece of sourdough is not going to give people type 2 diabetes, but it's when they keep going back and back and back and they suddenly have had six pieces. Um, or, you know, potatoes, again, people go, oh, potato, it's a vegetable, it's, you know, good for you. But a lot of people have trouble regulating it. It's, you know, it's it's disguised in chips and it's in mash and it's all those things and they just eat truckloads of it. It becomes hard to regulate. Robbie Clark says the interplay of genes and the environment play a significant role. I will do a lot of DNA testing in, in my clinic if I think that they might, uh, my clients might benefit from it, especially as a preventative measure. Um, if there's a strong family history of cardiometabolic issues or diseases, then I will absolutely do some or recommend some DNA testing. And then you can see what you're working with, right? And absolutely, from an epigenetic perspective, so environmentally, the toxic load of what is placed upon them And as I mentioned, that toxic load can come from anywhere. It can come from their workplace. So I, for example, have seen a lot of clients with um, hypertension, hypercholesterolemia, and with not necessarily any family history, and they've got a good lifestyle. They've got a very healthy uh, lifestyle with their exercise, with their diet, yet it's just always elevated. And then it's not until I really look at their work environment, these are people who might work on construction sites. They might be exposed to a lot of heavy metals through the materials that they work with, with paints. So it is extreme exposure and frequent exposure. That's something to also note. It's the frequent exposure rather than the one-off here and there that is a major cause. And so if their environment is problematic, I might do some additional hair mineral analysis or just heavy metal toxicity analysis to see what we're really working with. And then if it's there, then clearly starting a detoxification protocol is going to benefit these patients regardless, because these are people who also lack a lot of antioxidants. So therefore, they're going to have a lot of oxidative stress, which has been driven from environmental causes. And therefore, if that's not addressed, it will just keep snowballing and then become a ticking time bomb, unfortunately. What about exposure to plastics and, you know, flame retardants? And Absolutely. Even EMFs to a certain degree. Okay. Um, you know, it depends how extreme you need to be, but also you as a practitioner uh, kind of gauge this with every individual who sits across from you. So you might get some hypersensitive patients who are going to react to everything. Obviously, uh, SIRS or uh, chronic inflammatory response syndrome, um, people who have been exposed to mould because a lot of that uh, mycotoxin exposure and toxicity is definitely a major driver of all of this inflammation process as well. So collectively, we look at this in the assessment process and then we can see what needs to be addressed. The starting point for all of the practitioners is diet, with the Mediterranean diet the most popular choice. Naturopath Karen Squires. I will look at a combination of different dietary approaches for people because, as we know, there's keto, there's low-carb, there's all these different kind of things. But, you know, we know it's the diet that a patient can stick to that's the one that's going to work best 
for them. But overall, though, I really favour a Mediterranean diet. I really favour a lower-carb Mediterranean diet. It's anti-inflammatory, but I also want to look at something that's going to achieve a weight loss if that's needed, but support a healthy body composition as well. So, yeah, I generally go for a lower-carb Mediterranean diet, eliminating all processed and ultra-processed foods, red meat maybe once or, you know, lean red meat maybe once or twice a week, uh, focusing on increasing all plant foods. I like to include fish and nuts, extra virgin olive oil, exercise. Uh, so that's really foundational, that diet and exercise stuff. But it's not often that I have a client where I wouldn't be prescribing something as well. So by the time they see me, there's there's diet and lifestyle are going to achieve a huge result. Sometimes they need to get there a little quicker. You know, sometimes they're a little bit more behind the eight ball and we need to get them to a healthier zone sooner than, than waiting for the diet and lifestyle. Dr. Brad McEwen, PhD, has almost 20 years' experience as a naturopath, nutritionist, and educator. He has a special interest in cardiometabolic health. He uses a variety of nutrients and herbs. So vitamin C is, you know, good old anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, maintains and supports collagen, so our endothelium levels in the body, carnitine metabolism, insulin itself, um, tyrosinase pathways. It's involved with so many different metabolic pathways and neurotransmitters, it's ridiculous. Mm. It's, it's the one that everyone forgets about because it's so simple. Yeah. And, you know, vitamin C deficiency, not just scurvy, of course, but poor wound healing, vasomotor instability. So there's your um, sort of vascular symptoms, connected tissue disorders. And vitamin C, I tend to look around about 500 to 1,000 milligrams a dose. And the reason being is around 500 milligrams, you get around about 85 to 90% absorption with a lot of studies. When you get to 1,000, it's around 80. 2,000 drops to about 60%. So that the more you get, the less you absorb. Mm, okay, yeah. One of the new emerging ones that um, I've been writing about for a few years is the tocotrienols, which is part of the vitamin E family. I love the tocos, as we call them. <laughs> They're very useful. A lot of time it's from a natto, so it's from a natural seed. And I want you to imagine vitamin E we've been using for a long time. The difference is the tocotrienols have a way of protecting the cell membranes inside and out. So the tocopherols get absorbed into the system and sit on the cell membrane protecting it from damage. There's your antioxidant. The tocotrienols have a different biphasal tail. It's more flexible that can actually get transferred and incorporated into cell membrane, makes it through the cell membrane and protects it from the inside out as well. Mm. Antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, cholesterol metabolism, you know, glucose metabolism. Some of the research that's coming through showing that tocotrienol is a hepatoprotective, protects the liver from damage, oxidative stress. Same with the nervous system as well as the kidneys. And think of all these things get affected with type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance. So it's a very good all-rounder cover a wide range of areas. So the tocotrienols, I tend to look around about 125 milligrams of the tocotrienols two to three times a day, depending on what we're looking at, because a lot of our products for these chronic diseases are better two to three times a day. Okay. I also like vitamin K2. So people think of vitamin K2 for bone health, which is true. You know, bone metabolism, bone health, calcification of tissue in a positive way, but also um, 
it has a way with the endothelium that we talked about earlier by reducing plaque formation and calcium buildup. It maintains the flexibility. 180 micrograms a day of vitamin K2 is what I aim for. And that's based on a lot of research, particularly the Knappen study, where they had a, a number of postmenopausal women that took it. And let's just imagine bone health, blood health were improved, particularly the um, bone mineral content and bone mineral density of the lumbar spine and femoral neck, which of course is what you break when you break your hip. So it's a lot more balanced. It reduces arterial stiffness, reduces vascular calcification, and just general vascular health, blood health, normal coagulation. So there's a lot of research showing the benefit of vitamin K2. And if you combine it with the tocotrienols, you've got a 1 plus 1 equals 3. Um, omega-3, which has always interested me because that's where I did my PhD, was omega-3 on platelet function and coagulation, hence my love for the um, cardiometabolic health. Um, what doesn't it do is probably the best way to say yes. Yeah. Uh, anti-inflammatory cell membrane integrity, cell membrane composition, stress, anxiety, nervous tension, depression, lipid profile, play the function, coagulation, inflammation, the list goes on. And there's a lot of research showing um, that intake of omega-3 through dietary as well as supplemental forms improve cardiometabolic profile in women with PCOS. So women with polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS, have a higher incidence of insulin resistance as well as um, cardiometabolic disorder. So it's very beneficial, you know, for the, those patients. And I'd say even family history because um, they still could have that imbalance. So omega-3 dosage, very hard to say, but you can go several thousand milligrams of the EPA, DHA. So I always look at the content of the EPA, DHA. You can have a 2,000 milligram omega-3 with very low EPA, DHA, and that's not helpful because there's a lot of oil for a little bit. So I look for concentrated forms. Normally 540, 360, for example, is the standard EPA, DHA I look for. And I might do that two to three times a day. What about that ratio? No, perfect. It's a good point. The, the ratio does matter because, interestingly, we can convert EPA to DHA, but we can't retro-convert DHA to EPA. We can't back-convert. The body doesn't have those enzyme pathways. So in that case, I always look for EPA, DHA. And EPA has always been seen as the more anti-inflammatory in DHA cell membrane, which I think is too simplified. They both do inflammation, cell membrane integrity. At one stage, I was saying the brain doesn't contain any EPA at all. It's all DHA because of cell membrane integrity. Mm. So using the two-to-one ratio is good. Other considerations include magnesium, chromium, coenzyme Q10, selenium, carnitine, zinc and herbs, including berberine-containing herbs, amongst others. Ashwagandha, withania, one of my top favourite herbs. You know, what is it? Rejuvenator, revitalizer, memory, cognition, stress, anxiety, cortisol. It does a lot of factors. So it does a lot of the background work related to insulin resistance and cardiometabolic conditions. So it's a lot of that background work. And again, it's something that we use a lot in clinical practice because it does so many applications. So I love ashwagandha. Lemon balm, calming, relaxing, neurotransmitters, antioxidant, antispasmodic, so it's good for the spasms, the arteries and the veins, calms the gut, very nice calming, relaxing herb so you can get a good nice sleep, good rest, but also has this really overall beneficial effect. Same with ashwagandha, combining the two. And then on top of that, combining with passion flower, which is one of my top, top favorite herbs. Again, for that stress, anxiety, nervousness, irritability. So a lot of things we could do with herbs for cardiometabolic health is calming people down, calming down the emotional fire, so to say. Rhodiola, of course, is very beneficial anti-stress, but also anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, again, working in the background. So rhodiola is a very useful herb. 
combining that with the others. Saffron is another herb that's starting to have a greater impact now. We have a lot of research showing, again, antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, memory, learning. But it's also having that neuroendocrine link, which, of course, is metabolic profiles, cardiometabolic health. So saffron's having a cost you a million bucks, but at the same time, it's really good stuff. We're just seeing someone have to go out there and um, get the little um, stigma. <laughs> a lot of work's gone into from the universe into making saffron, and then we take it to little bits. And then, of course, you've got turmeric, because what doesn't turmeric do? So it pretty much, again, same as the others, anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, immune regulation, liver, kidney, protective, memory, anti-stress, as I was mentioning, wound healing, lipid profiles, lipid health. Yeah, it just covers so many areas. And turmeric you can have as a food, you can add it into your veggies, you can add it into your, your latte, your smoothie, or as a supplement, you can have it anywhere. Turmeric's awesome. And one of my big ones is meditation, mindfulness. And that's to sort of round this out is we need to slow down and have that time out. And like I said in another time, I have a time out every hour. I get up, walk away from my desk, walk around for a minute. And that's a time out for me because I'm defragging the hard work, the hard wires of the brain, taking me away from that and coming back into it and sort of allowing me that moment. And then every morning and evening, I just sit and do a little bit of a meditation, mindfulness, and just sort of just ground myself or whatever I need to do that day. And lastly, dark chocolate. Everyone knows I love chocolate. Oh. <laughs> and chocolate's very beneficial. It's anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, anti-platelet, anti-thrombotic, anti-atherogenic, insulin sensitivity, vasodilator, glucose metabolism, endothelial health. It does so much. It's exciting stuff. And research published a couple of years ago, and I know causation's not always, or is it correlation's not causation, mm. as they say, but the nations with the higher consumption of chocolate had more Nobel Prizes. <laughs> so, and Australia's pretty much up there because we've won some. So I, I find that interesting. People will debate me on that, of course, but hey, let's talk. Next week, we'll tackle metabolic syndrome. We'll talk again to naturopath Karen Squires, functional dietitian Robbie Clark, and we'll introduce naturopath and cardiac nurse Lisa Fiaccini. Thank you for listening. We hope this podcast engaged and empowered you. And thank you to all of our experts. You can read more information on each of them on our website, bioconceptsengage.com.au. If you enjoy this episode of Between Clinical Minds, please refer a friend and share the love. To continue the conversation, you can contact us at bioconceptsengage.com.au, where community is more than a concept. Music